This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in to our final program of the week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the word to stand on for life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, pretty much whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way by far to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and everything else can be done hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We'd love to end the week with some phone calls and some questions. Um, While we're getting ready to start, let me just say tonight I'm going to be teaching out of Ephesians chapter 1 here at 7 o'clock. You can watch it at calvarysa.com online. And then on Sunday we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study through uh, 2 Timothy, uh, also in chapter Chapter 1 in that book, and that will be a live in-person service at 8.30, and then you can watch it um, online at 10.15 and 11.59, the regular time for our other services. Well, let me get to some questions that have been sent. The first one comes from Mary. Um, Pastor Ron, in your study last night, you spoke about a Brahmin Sarai, and they also doubted the word the Lord promised. That spoke to me because right now I feel like time is the enemy on what I feel the Lord has been talking to me about for a year. Um, I have a couple of questions about that. I do have a question about last night's study. When the Lord found Hagar running away and her belonging to Sarai, just something in my mind I'm curious about. Do you suppose if Hagar was not with child, the angel of the Lord would have told her to go back? And second, I know uh, with Philemon, that was a different situation. That's my favorite story ever. Um, And then she said, I can listen to you teach that over and over. (laughs) Thank you, Mary. That's one of my favorites, too. You know, Mary, I I absolutely don't even entertain what-if questions. 
um, uh, if she was not part of the story, if she wasn't pregnant, she wouldn't have been part of the story. Um, so there would have been no need for her to be mistreated by Sarai, nor would there be any need for her to run away. And, of course, the angel Lord in the Old Testament, when it's the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, Christ before the manger. Uh, and it's called a theophany. Some prefer Christophany. Um, but, but that was him. And he wouldn't have had to meet her. The beautiful thing about last night's study, Mary, is that chapter 16 in Genesis is her born-again story. I see the God, or I saw the God who sees me. And she learned there that she was never alone. And while it's cruel to our ears to hear him say, you are a servant of Sarai, now go back to her, even though she's been mistreated. Jesus is a realist. He meets her where she is. And he lets her know how to get where he wants her to be. And so he says, go back. Now, I realize that's not what we would want God to say to us. But, but you see, because she listened, she got to meet him. She saw him. Imagine what the, and when she went back, she was no longer alone. She was with Jesus. And her whole life changed as a result of that. But one of the things I always caution people, Mary, when they're saying the Bible is is not to do the what ifs. What if Adam uh, and Eve hadn't eaten the, the forbidden fruit? Uh, well, they did. And so there's there's no point in speculating about it at all. And in this particular case, the beautiful part about this is that Jesus found her. She didn't find him. And he came to her when she was at the lowest possible state. And he opened his hands and nothing but grace came out. I know it's an Old Testament story, but that's a New Testament gift, the gift of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely old-deserving. So uh, he wouldn't have needed to be there because she wouldn't have been there. So just take the story, read what's there, and deal with that. Instead of speculating about all the what might have happened, just enjoy what really did happen. Good question, Mary. Thank you very much. Here's a question from Andrea or Andrea. I don't know which one it is. Uh, Did Jesus stop being God on the cross? No, Jesus never stopped being God. When he died, it wasn't like God died. The the, the human side of Jesus died. He was the God-man. The son of man, the son of David. But God, remember, is eternal. So God never died. Jesus the human did. Now, it's always hard, Andrea, when we, we, we look at the dual nature of Jesus. He was 100% God and 100% man. When we add that up, that doesn't make sense to us. It's 200% of something. But Jesus was fully man, fully God, and by the way, is always going to be fully man and fully God. And so when the man Jesus died... Jesus, who is the Son of God and God the Son, didn't die. God never dies. It would have looked like it to his disciples. One of the reasons they were afraid, they were so crushed and so without hope, it looked like the one they knew to be God died. I always think of Mary of Bethany, because she was the one who seemed to have the most spiritual insight, even more than than Jesus' disciples who would be apostles. What was it like for her when Jesus died and she thought, how could that be? 
or Mary Magdalene. Andrea, think about her. She, she was a, a woman who had been delivered from demon possession. Seven powerful demons lived in her. And when she saw Jesus die, the only thing she could have thought about was, are those demons going to come back? How could this happen? And of course, we know the story. Jesus appeared first to her at the tomb and what a wonderful moment that was. So no, Andre, he did not stop being God on the cross or when he died. Here is a question from Amanda. Amanda says, the Bible says our hearts are wicked and deceitful. Can we trust our hearts at all? Amanda, it depends whether your heart is the, the heart with and for Jesus or the heart that's with and for you. Um, I've been confused. I've been tricked uh, by my heart so many times. You know, we all like to think our hearts are good, but the Bible says Paul writing in our flesh is no good thing. Not, not a few good things or some good things, but no good thing. So no, we cannot trust our carnal heart at all. But, and this is, I hope will deliver you from any despairing, when we're with Christ, when we're walking in the Spirit, of course we can trust our heart because our heart is His heart. So that's the difference. If you're making decisions, Amanda, and those decisions are based on what you want to do or what you think is right, never trust your heart. By the way, never trust your feelings either. Your feelings are real. We're emotional beings, so we, we all have feelings. But our feelings are notoriously undependable. So the truth is that we can trust our hearts when our hearts are right with God. When we can say, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. Of course you can trust your heart. When you're in fellowship with Jesus, of course you can trust your heart. But on the flip side, when we want what we want, or when we're agreeing with the world around us, we can never trust our hearts. Now remember, when Jeremiah was told, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, above all things, he said, um, a Jewish mind had no concept of Christ in us, the hope of glory. So what was true in the Old Testament for Jeremiah and for others is not true of us if we will take the time to walk with Jesus instead of just doing what we think we ought to do or what we think we want to do. So Amanda, the next time your heart tells you, God wants me to be happy, don't trust that. That's wicked and deceitful. Uh, but when then your heart shouts out, God, I love you so much and I want your will, that's the heart you can trust. It's the whole process of sanctification you just asked about. Uh, you can trust your heart more and more and more as every day you become more and more like Jesus. So I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Here is anonymous, uh, an anonymous question. How can I be sure my husband is truly repentant and changed since he cheated on me? I want to take him back, but I'm afraid. Anonymous, I've heard this story, I was going to say hundreds of times, that might be a little bit of hyperbole, but I've heard it a lot 
from people. So let me tell you what I've told them over the years. You can tell your husband is truly repentant, that he is a changed man, if he's willing to accept the consequences of his actions. You know, when a wife is mistrusting of a husband who's cheated on her, instead of the husband saying something like, well, God forgave me, why can't you? The truly changed man will say, I'm sorry you don't trust me. That's my fault. That's not your fault. I'll do better. You see, that's what it means to accept responsibility, to, to um, own your sin, and then the consequences that come. And too often we want to sin, we get caught, and then we want it just to go away. But it doesn't go away. Well, God forgave me. I always tell him, you tell your husband that, that you're not God. And you still have a hard time with trust. Your heart still hurts because of the betrayal. And the man who's truly repentant will say, well, that's on me, not on you. I'm so sorry. That's the way you can know that you can trust him. This is a matter for a lot of prayer, too. God knows your husband's heart. You don't. Perhaps he doesn't even know. But God knows. And God will tell you what he wants you to do. You know, Anonymous, I've had, um, uh, you know, there's no pat answer for this because I've had women in your situation, in some cases men as well, uh, and they would ask the Lord, what, what should I do? Should I leave him? I'm so hurt. Should I divorce him? And others, like you, would say, well, I don't want to divorce him, but I, I can't be hurt again. And God will tell them, I've had God say to some of them, yes, you're free, divorce him. And I've had other women who God said, no, stay where you are and love him. What's the difference? Is God inconsistent? No, it's just that God knows, in this case, the husband's heart and what he's going to do. You know, we can be tricked. We can be manipulated. God can. I love when Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. He knows those who are his in chapter 6. So if your husband is that guy, God will let you know. Trust him. Be willing to be hurt for Jesus to extend grace and love. Sorry for the situation. Here is another anonymous question. I'm beginning to panic with everything going on in the world. Is God trying to get our attention? I feel sometimes like God is not in control. How can I calm down? Um... There, there is a lot going on in the world, but, but this is one of those places where we've got to really rest in the promises God has given us. Jesus said to you, Anonymous, I will never leave you or forsake you. If you believe that, the Gospel of John, I've got you in my hand, and no one can take you out of my hand, and my Father is greater than I, as you in his, as you in his hand, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. If you believe those things, then there's no place for panic. Now, I also want to be sensitive to, to, to the fear 
that you and millions of people now, millions of people are experiencing. There's nothing wrong with being afraid. The only thing that causes us harm is when we give in to that fear. So trust in the Lord. Trust in Him. Be with Him every day. And a peace that passes understanding. Notice, it's not a peace that you can attain through understanding. It passes understanding. Don't try to understand it. Just by faith, receive it. In terms of your question, is God trying to get our attention? I think God, like everything else, will use this to work all things together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. That doesn't mean we won't be sick. It doesn't mean that we won't go through difficult times. It just means that when we rest in Him, we will stay in His will, the only really safe place to be. And never, Anonymous, never feel like God's not in control. He's always in control. Even the enemy, even the enemy is His servant. So he's never out of control. We live in a world where things are winding down. We're getting close to the end. Jesus is getting ready to to stand from his position of being seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And as he starts to stand, as his return draws nearer, we'll find out just how controlled he really is. All these things that we're going through are given to us in detail in Scripture. There's no coronavirus chapter in Scripture. But here's what is there. Timothy, mark this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, in the last days there will be terrible times, one translation says. The King James uses the word perilous times. And then in the first verses, he describes what those perilous times are. You can read those verses anonymous and 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 you will know that this is the time he's speaking of. How can you calm down? Rest in him. There's no other place to go. Thank you for the question. Let's go to line one and talk with Ray. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thanks for being there, Pastor Ron. I have a puzzlement in my mind that started with you uh, opening the show, and happy weekend coming. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Back to Jesus being both God and man, and uh, God did not die on the cross, Jesus did, but... How about on the way to the cross and before that when he was sweating blood, um, uh, which is, I don't know how to decipher, you know, the difference between Jesus the man and Jesus as Mm -hmm. God, other than one is, uh, you know, present on the earth, and I don't, I don't know if, uh, if there's, uh, and I don't know if, if if we're told anything about it, whether whether God feels pain. I, we know his heart gets broken when we're yeah. not good, but uh, I, I'm just trying to sort through uh, what does it all really mean? You know, which it yep. was when Jesus was here 
physically on earth um, as a man, but also still God, um, was there a dichotomy there, or how, how would you how would you explain that to somebody if they came up with such a goofy question as I? <laughs> and I'll and I'll listen on the on the uh, air. Thank you, Ray. God bless you. And, and your questions are never goofy. Sometimes it takes you a little while to, to explain it, but but they're deep questions. And this is a question about one of those theological truths that people have been wrestling with for 2,000 years. So this is not an all an unusual question. First, we have to understand that while Jesus never stopped being God, in his incarnation, from the time of his birth, his deity was veiled. I think the term is the kenosis of God. His deity was veiled. In other words, he didn't use the God card. He only did what he saw his father do. He only said what he heard his father say. Jesus never acted independently from his father on this planet. So the man Jesus, without benefit of using the God card, imagine when the devil came to him after 40 days of not eating and not drinking, Jesus at his weakest point Jesus didn't use the God card. Jesus could have commanded him to be gone and he would have been gone. But he didn't do that. He dealt with it the way you and I deal with it. He dealt with it as a man. So that incarnation is important because in his incarnation, Jesus was exposed to sin and temptation just like we are. Jesus was exposed to emotions, highs and lows, just like we are. And every test, every trial he endured, he endured as a human. My second, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, the second chapter of Philippians, says that though he was God, he considered equality with God not something to be held on to. And he did that for more than 30 years on this planet. And he did it for you and he did it for me. That's really, really important. The other differentiation when he was here walking the earth is all of the physical experiences, the physical sense of hunger or thirst that I talked about with the, in the wilderness, the, the, the sense of sadness. Jesus wept. Um, the, the time, certainly, we don't have a bunch of them in the Bible where Jesus was laughing and experiencing uh, joy, what we would call happiness. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as you pointed out, Ray, when he experienced near death, so desperate was his physical condition when he was sweating great drops of blood. Um, You know, doctor will tell you that that's the last place a body goes to try to cool itself down. So So great was his grief in that garden. So complete the attack of Satan that only... The Father sending him an angel to minister to him saved him physically. So Jesus had to be saved by that angel in order to go to the cross to die. On the cross, when they beat him, when he asked him to carry his own cross, the cross bar, that was Jesus the man doing all of that. Imagine, Ray, how thrilling it must have been for Jesus upon his death to hold again equality with God as his rightful possession. 
no longer limited by time and space, no longer able to feel pain, no longer having to struggle with the sin and temptation in this world, no longer uh, needing to, to, to watch lepers and blind and crippled people. Instead, he was free from all of that. And yet, and in a way I can't explain, Ray, it's a staggering thought. Jesus would be reminded of his incarnation. He would be reminded of his pain and his limitations every time he'd look at his hands or into his side because the scars would remain with him forever. So that's a great question, Ray. And I think considering, I mean, deeply thinking about the incarnation of God, God becoming a man is certainly going to increase our appreciation, our gratitude for what he's done for us. That Jesus would leave the worship of angels in heaven and we're told that he gives the stars in the sky their paths to keep them from crashing into one another. He's holding all things together. And to trade all of that in in an instant for the womb of a teenage girl is an amazing thing to consider. God was born into a barn and he thought you were worth it. Even more remarkable, Ray, he thought that I was worth it as well. Good question. Thanks very much. Hey, we've got 30 minutes in our week left. We'd love to have your calls. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our final half hour of the week, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to Converse, Texas and talk with Phyllis on line one. Phyllis, thanks for calling. You are on the air. Well, hello, Pastor Ron. Sorry, uh, I've been out of pocket. Can you hear me okay? I, I can hear you, and your voice is, is like God giving me a kiss. It's good to hear from you again, Phyllis. Oh, same here. I really miss you guys. Hopefully uh, I'll get back in, in uh, the church pretty soon. Um, oh. I was, um, <clears throat> of course, I flipped from Old Testament to New Testament, but this morning mm-hmm. being in Old Testament, I was studying uh, uh, Moses, you know, when God kept uh, telling him to go to Pharaoh to let my people go. (laughs) Uh, My question is, uh, was Pharaoh being stubborn, or was it literally God's plan to harden his heart? And also, I was 
And also I was in Matthew 16, uh, 24, uh, when Jesus said to his disciples, if you would, uh, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself and take up the cross and follow me. And I literally got to thinking, what is he really saying about that? And then I was thinking like, the cross could mean pain or suffering, just like he did. The cross could mean I need to let go of unforgiveness. The cross could mean, you know, I, I, I should love even though that person don't love me back. I just start thinking of a lot of things that cross could mean. Mm-hmm. But but you're the expert, Pastor Ron, <laughs> and if you could get a feedback there, I, <laughs> I'll listen on the air, and I appreciate you guys. Tell Paula hello. Thank you. I'll and do it. She's so listening, much. so she just heard you. Thank you, Phyllis. Oh. God bless you. Um, you know, those are those are really good questions. And um, the, the question about Pharaoh, and for this very purpose I raised you up, you know, it makes it sound like God just created Pharaoh just so he could knock him down a notch. Um, that's not at all what happens. When you read that exchange uh, between Moses and Pharaoh, um, it says repeatedly, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And I think the number's right, Phyllis, but but seven times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Seven, especially in the Old Testament, is the number of completion. In other words, he hardened his heart against God, though he knew it was God. Remember that his, his magicians could duplicate the first couple of of, of, of signs and wonders. But he couldn't create life. That's when he knew. He knew he was dealing with God who was greater than he was, greater than the gods that he served. And so even though he knew, and in some instances backed off, okay, I'll let you go, but you have to do this. And Moses say, no, let my people go. And it says repeatedly seven times, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Finally, God hardened his heart. And what that means, Phyllis, is simply that God gave him over to his own already hardened heart. There was no more hope for Pharaoh. He'd completely crossed that line. We'd call it a New Testament construct, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so it wasn't that, that God just made it impossible for him to repent. Pharaoh had no intention of repenting, no intention of submitting. And so God just let him alone with his own heart. So that's what that's all about. Um, Reformed guys, Calvinists will say, nope, he was put on this earth to be um, knocked down. He never had a chance. That wasn't it. Moses went to him time and time and time and time again. He just didn't care. Um, The other question is really a deep one, uh, Phyllis. All the things that you talked about is denying self. When Jesus said to me, to be my disciple... And this is a a verse that we all need to remember every day. We say we're Christians. Well, are you submitted to Jesus' teaching? Are you submitted to his person? Jesus said to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross. Luke adds the word daily. He's the only gospel writer that does. And follow me. Pick up your cross. Deny self. Follow me. So that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the cross always speaks of death. So it's not just a, I'm going to deny myself in this moment. It means to die. Dead people don't talk back. Dead people have no rights. Dead people don't care what other people think. So this is a command 
Phyllis, it says to follow Jesus every day requires that we die to us. And for me personally, Phyllis, I think the way that I remind myself of this daily is, is I just realize that I've got to say no to me. Whatever my flesh wants, I've got to say no to me so that I can say yes to him. And that's what it means to pick up your cross daily, to deny yourself. I'm going to do what you want, Jesus, not what I want. And then Jesus says, okay, follow me. And that's what it means to be his disciple. Great questions. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. Here's a question from Rudy. I know Jeremiah 29.11 is not for New Testament believers, but what can I take from it without misusing the Scripture? Rudy, this is one of the two or three most misused Scriptures in all of the Bible by New Testament Christians. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans not to harm you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And we take that and we claim it by faith. Let me tell you something, Rudy. You can look at Romans chapter 8 and the promises that we have are infinitely greater than the promises given to Jeremiah. Now in context, of course, Jeremiah was struggling over the fact, remember, during the Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah was left in um, in Israel, in Judah. Um, Ezekiel, a contemporary, was taken away in the captivity to Babylon. So Jeremiah would think, I'm all alone, nobody's listening to me. Now we're talking a 40 plus year ministry. And one of those moments where he was really, really down, he's watching the people of God be devastated. God is basically telling him in chapter 29, verse 11, hey, don't worry about it. I know the plans I have for you. My plans aren't to destroy you. My plans are to bless you. My plans are to give you hope and a future. And to Jeremiah, it would have looked like there was no hope and there was no future. Well, that's why God gave Jeremiah that passage of Scripture. Now, again, for us, um, God has a plan for us. God um, hopes to give us a future filled with blessing. But it doesn't at all imply that we're not going to go through difficult times as well. And that way, if we really live in Romans chapter 8, that's the, the chapter in the Bible, it's life in the Spirit, then we can take all of those other promises. God will never leave us. If God is for us, who can be against us? We're more than conquerors through him who loved us, and on and on and on. If we can take those promises, they're, they're much greater promises than the promises that were made to Jeremiah or any of the Old Testament saints, for that matter. So what you take for it is that in God's will is a place of blessing, not a place of ease. It's still a place of difficulty. But it is a place where if you are suffering, you're sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we can take that from Jeremiah twenty nine eleven the application, but we really can't take those Old Testament scriptures out of context, Rudy, and say, well, God promised me that. That's a lot of pain when we do that. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is our next question from Tina, who wants to know, can women be ushers and greeters in church? Uh, Tina, of course they can. Um, there's there's only one thing a woman cannot do in the church of Jesus Christ, and that's to be a pastor. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That's a do, two, two things. She can't teach or have authority or teach from a position of authority might be easier to understand. But there's no other position in the church that a woman can't occupy. Ushers and greeters, in fact, we've got probably 50-50. We try to encourage married people to get involved in the usher ministry. And the reason is because we want to be able to greet women and men alike. And when they come in, we we want uh, this to be a a place that looks like um, the real world. And there's men and there's women. Uh, There are women worship leaders. Um, um, Last Wednesday night, I think it was, a week from yesterday, um, or a week from Wednesday, um, we we had the the, the worship leader was uh, our Amy who did uh, just an unbelievable job of worship. I, I I just I left here so blessed by what a great job she did. Now in part because I know her heart, but in large part I mean she just was good. And so you, there's there's no restrictions, Tina, about what women can do. With that one exception, a woman cannot be a pastor in authority in a church over men. That's the only thing. So I hope that makes sense. Tim says, Pastor Ron, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Um, Tim, one of my favorite studies is the, the, the Triumphal Entry Sunday. And you have to go back to the day when he walked in, or actually rode in on a foal of a donkey, um, into Jerusalem and everybody was shouting Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord well, remember over and over in scripture it says Jesus committed himself to no man because he knew what was in the hearts of men and so he would look into those eyes and knowing what was going to happen he knew because Elijah and Moses had appeared to him on the Mount of Transfiguration to tell him the things that were going to happen and uh, Jesus would look at those eyes and say, yeah, you're saying Hosanna now, but soon you'll be saying crucify him. And his heart would be broken because he knew the real condition of the hearts of the people lining that street. You'll also remember that after that, he went and kind of checked out the temple. And he, he found that, that they turned the house of God into a den of thieves my father's house is to be a house of prayer and you've turned into a den of robbers, he said. And he would go out to Bethany that night and formulate in his mind all day how he was going to respond. He'd look at the religious leaders, the men who were supposed to be representing God to the people. He'd look at them and he would know what was in their hearts, their long flowing robes and beards and the phylacteries and all of their long showy prayers and their self-righteousness. Everybody thought that they were the really, really religious guys. And Jesus knew their hearts were filthy. And you know what? He just got fed up. This isn't Jesus having a hissy fit. Jesus isn't losing his temper. This was a considered decision. So on the way back in the next morning from Bethany, it's about five miles from Jerusalem, um, on the way back in, he saw a fig tree. The fig tree was in leaf, generally. I told the story at our church all the time. You know, We have a fig tree in our back, and it took years for it to produce any fruit. It had lots of leaves, but... Generally, when you see a fig tree and leaf, there's going to be figs. Jesus was hungry. 
And he went to the fig tree and would put his arm in there trying to find fruit to, to eat for breakfast, and there just wasn't any fruit. And I think that reminded him of all the things that happened the day before. The people who weren't what they appeared to be, the, the temple of God that wasn't what it appeared to be, the religious leaders that weren't who they claimed to be. And now we got a fig tree, and Jesus says, no fruit. And I think that was just a summary, Tim, of everything he experienced the next day. Every, everything he experienced the, the day before, rather, was just no fruit, no fruit. And I think when he cursed it, and the Bible makes a special note that the disciples were amazed that it withered so quickly, I think Jesus was giving them a sermon illustration to explain to them what was going on in his heart from all of the events of the day before. So I hope that answers your question, Tim. It's a great, great study. If you want to uh, go to our website, calvarysa.com, go to one of our Palm Sunday messages because I often talk about that that poor fig tree. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. As our week runs down, here's a question from Marvin: Should we pray for something once, believe it, and stop praying about it, or keep on praying for the same thing? You know, Marvin, it confuses people a lot because they think, well, if I ask God and I really believe it, why would I ask Him again? Because that's unbelief. And unfortunately, that's a pretty popular teaching in a lot of these prosperity church circles. But Jesus told a parable about the persistent widow, and we ought to pray like that. Keep on bugging him. Now, we're not really bugging him when we pray. But here's the truth. I think if we only pray for something once, and we don't really bombard Jesus' throne with prayers, I think Jesus' response would be, well, I guess it wasn't that important to you. And remember, when we pray, we don't pray to get our will done. We pray to get God's will done. Prayer changes us. And a lot of times, we have to keep praying for something because in the process of that prayer, God is changing us. Let me give you a case in point, Marvin. Um, Paula prayed for me for 13 years. For 13 years. Imagine if she stopped after 12 years and 11 months. Or if she got tired of praying at 10 months or at 8 months or at 3 months or 2 months. Maybe she prayed with tears flowing down her cheeks really, really earnestly, fervently. But just got tired of not hearing anything, not getting a response. But she kept, like that persistent widow, knocking on the door of heaven on my behalf. And over the period of 13 years that she prayed for me, she's the one who changed, not me. When God was done with the work in her, that's when I got saved. So Marvin, keep on praying. If you're unwilling to keep praying about something, then it's really not that important to you. One other thought, Marvin, that I think is really important, I always remind my church of this, that if they're praying about something or someone then that prayer is disingenuous if, in fact, they're not willing to be the one God uses to answer that prayer. Again, going back to Paula, she suffered a great deal because of me. 
over and over and over. But she was the one willing to suffer so her husband would get saved. So don't give up. Jesus said, I told you this parable so that you would keep on praying, never giving up. Thank you, Marvin. Here is a question from Nacho. Um, Pastor and you were mentioned on J.D. Farag's prophecy update. What is your opinion of his ministry and of prophecy updates in general? Um, you know, Nacho, J.D. is a casual friend. I mean, he's a really, really, really good guy. He's a Calvary Chapel guy in Hawaii, and he's a really good guy. I had no idea that I was going to be mentioned. Um, not only that, I had no idea um, that that his ministry, and in particular the Prophecy Updates, had such a big audience. I mean, he's huge on YouTube, I guess, and and um, and people are watching, and I just thought, my goodness, I, I, you know, if I did a YouTube video, there'd be six people, and they'd all be related to me who'd watch but but he's got literally hundreds of thousands of online listeners, evidently. And in in the week when you wrote this question, this actually comes from from early this week. Your question. And when when you wrote this, the, the last part of last week, and the first part of this week, I must have had a half dozen people mention this to me. And since I don't listen to it myself, uh, I was really surprised. So. Um, um, JD is um, he's got a pretty big audience now what is my opinion of his ministry he's a Calvary Chapel guy um, he teaches the word uh, prophecy updates are something he does once a week uh, I'm not a big fan of prophecy updates in general uh, I think sometimes it gets our focus off the verse by verse teaching in the word I think if you're teaching through the Bible, Nacho, I think if you do that, then you're going to have plenty of opportunities to, to slip prophecy in. I think you're going to have opportunities to tell people Jesus is coming back. I am able to do that all the time. And I think when we specialize sort of in prophecy updates, we have a tendency to get a little bit sensational. And J.D. falls into that category. Again, he is a really, really good guy, loves God with all of his heart, and, and and we would hug one another if we if we ran into each other. But I think when when our focus is too much on prophecy and the fulfillment of that prophecy, I think our ministry gets just a little out of balance. And when it gets out of balance, we're no longer feeding our our, our flocks a good, healthy, balanced diet. The word, the word, the word. So I'm not a big fan of prophecy updates in general. Um, but uh, I know J.D., and I know his heart, and uh, he is really a good guy. So I hope that helps. We've got about five minutes left. If somebody wanted to sneak in a call really quick, I could do it. Here's a question from Jason. Uh, what does it mean that God doesn't change? I ask because it doesn't seem like God does miracles like before in the Bible. Um, it doesn't mean that. What it means is that God doesn't change, Jason. It means that... Um, uh, God doesn't change in character. He's immutable. He is steadfast. Um, his nature doesn't change. Um, his word doesn't change. Uh, he is holy. That doesn't change. So, so it means that. Now, it does not mean, it cannot mean that it doesn't change the way he works throughout history. 
we know that he walked with Abraham. We're studying Abraham in, in Genesis right now on, on Wednesday nights. Uh, we know with Moses, he dealt with Moses through the law. Gave the law to Moses. Moses was his advanced man. He's the one who spoke for God to the people. And the people were happy with that. When, when Moses died, things changed. Again, he said to Joshua, don't be afraid, don't worry. Imagine how difficult it would have been to follow Moses. Joshua was terrified, and God said, don't worry. Don't let the word depart from your mouth. Don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right. The word, the word, the word. And now God was going to deal with his people in the word. Well, obviously that changes in the New Testament. God deals with us. The finished work of Jesus Christ, instead of law, we're under grace. And so God changes the way he works. Now the miracles that you asked about, they were validating miracles. Jesus did miracles that validated his claims to be the Christ. Not only that, but it was prophesied in this very Jewish ministry, Jesus said, that when the Christ came, he would do these things. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, there were signs and wonders to validate the ministry of the apostles. The same thing would be true of the miracles done by the apostles. They were signs and wonders validating their message. Now, we've the way that they did then. We have all the light that we need, and so the, the the miracles are are I mean there are still miracles that are done but uh, you know they're rare and by definition miracles are supposed to be rare. I think another thing, Jason, that we forget is that um, we read, especially through the Book of Acts, like Paul and Peter and the others would just go from one miracle to another. You know, one minute Philip is here and the next minute he's on the road to Gaza. Uh, the next minute he's snatched away and we think, wow, all those miracles. And, and we read it as though miracles were happening all the time. You know, the book of Acts is a period of just over 30 years. And if you look at all the miracles that were done in the book of Acts, those miracles could have been done years and years and years and years apart. So we, we don't look for miracles. Um, that doesn't mean God's changed. It just means that he's dealing with mankind differently than he did before. So Jason, I think, uh, I hope that makes sense to you. That's a, a really good question. But remember, God is always talking about his nature, his character, who he is, his substance. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And uh, um, the only thing that changes is the way he deals with people. And aren't you glad, as I am, that he's going to change one more time? Because Jesus is coming soon. He'll be here. It could be today. Probably won't, but it could be today. And we need to be sure that we're ready. Thanks, Jason, for the question. Hey, thanks for tuning in. It's been a really good week on the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, get out of your house. If your church is meeting in person, go to church and be a part of the body of Christ. I'll see you Monday on AM 630 The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 
The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.